Welcome to Come Rain or Shine, podcast of the USDA Southwest Climate Hub and the USGS Southwest Climate Adaptation Science Center, or Southwest CASC. I'm Sarah Leroy, Science Applications and Communications Coordinator for the Southwest CASC. And I'm Emily Elias, Director of the Southwest Climate Hub. Here we highlight stories to share the most recent advances in climate science, weather, and climate adaptation and innovative practices to support resilient landscapes and communities. We believe that sharing some of the most innovative, forward-thinking, and creative climate science and adaptation will strengthen our collective ability to respond to even the most challenging impacts of climate change in one of the hottest and driest regions of the world. Last month, we spoke with three experts on the impacts of extreme heat on public health. Continuing with the topic of extreme heat, this month we're focusing on how we can mitigate these public health impacts through improved urban planning and green infrastructure. Lad Keith is an interdisciplinary researcher at the University of Arizona working at the intersection of urban planning and climate change to create more sustainable and resilient cities. He has over a decade of experience working with diverse stakeholders to solve complex urban challenges in cities across the U.S. His current research explores urban heat governance and how cities can increase heat resilience through the mitigation and management of heat. Lisa LaRocque is the Sustainability Officer for the City of Las Cruces, New Mexico, where she spearheads efforts to address climate change and resiliency in the city, including mitigating the effects of extreme heat. These efforts include mapping the city's urban heat island, implementing green infrastructure strategies, and creating and implementing a climate action plan. Dave Hondula is a researcher at Arizona State University, where he focuses on the social and health effects of natural and technological hazards, with an emphasis on extreme heat and power failures. He works closely with local, regional, and state authorities on the development and implementation of plans and programs to make communities safer and more resilient to extreme events. Thank you all very much for joining us today. My co-host, Emily, is actually traveling right now, but she will be back with us next month. We know that temperatures are rising and that cities experience heat waves that are dangerous for public health. But an added stressor is the urban heat island effect which many cities in the Southwest experience. Lad, I'd like to start with you. Could you please explain the urban heat island effect and why it's so important for this discussion on mitigating extreme heat in urban areas? Great, thank you for having me on, Sarah. So the urban heat island effect is the idea that how we plan and design cities, including the materials that we use like concrete and asphalt and the waste heat from things like um, Vehicles and air conditioning uh, make urban areas hotter than their surrounding agricultural and rural uh, countrysides. And that means that um, certain parts of the city are hotter than others, too, um, which leads to a lot of um, inequities with how um, heat is distributed spatially across cities. Um, So mitigating the urban heat is important. Um, And of course, a lot of cities are starting to look at strategies, but these strategies depend a lot on the climate and the built environment typology of the city. Um, Some categories include um, increasing urban greening, looking at reducing waste heat, um, utilizing urban design to increase um, shade opportunities for pedestrians outside, and larger scale land use planning. 
Um, one thing um, that I'd like to mention is most cities are only considering a very small number of pools that they have at their disposal, though. And so uh, my colleague, Sarah Miro at Arizona State University and I did a survey of United States planners and found that 80% of those planners um, across the country felt that their communities were already impacted by extreme heat. Um, the number one uh, thing that planners were considering using as a strategy was urban forestry. But the least popular strategies were dedicating staff or roles for heat, meaning it has no problem owner in local governments, and also um, not using regulations uh, related to um, future development. And so those were the two least popular strategies that we found. And so that has a lot of implications because that means that um, arguably local municipalities, one of the largest uh, tools that they have at their disposal is land use regulations, and they're not using those to change the form of the built environment for the future to mitigate heat. Um, and I mentioned, too, that while we call it the urban heat island effect, even smaller and medium-sized communities across the United States should be considering ways to mitigate um, urban heat. And um, not just for the public health reasons that you mentioned, but also for infrastructure, economic development, um, kind of local ecology. There's a lot of other reasons to care about heating communities. Thanks, Lad. Uh, Lisa, so you've collaborated with both Dave and Lad on several heat-related projects, and, and one of these projects involved mapping the urban heat island in Las Cruces. So could you describe that project a little bit and explain how it has helped you in your planning efforts for the city? Thanks for including me today, Sarah. Um, I have had the pleasure of collaborating with Dave and Lad and lots of other great climate warriors from Arizona and New Mexico. And um, in mapping the urban heat island in Las Cruces, I wanted to understand the relationship between social vulnerability factors and extreme heat, urban heat. So uh, Dave introduced me to the NASA DEVELOP program where students work with researchers on a special summer project defined by a client. So I had a researcher who mentored a whole group of smart and curious students from around the country at my disposal. It was wonderful. So the students drew from several satellite images to create a composite snapshot of the city that described various physical characteristics, such as land surface temperature, impervious surfaces, tree canopy, and other vegetation. And then the students creatively also mapped five social vulnerability characteristics including household composition related to seniors and kids under five, economic stability, transportation and housing, health status, and minority status. And with all these layers of information, we were able to look at how urban design might disproportionately impact vulnerable populations and consider appropriate mitigation strategies. So we saw for certain areas, there were a lot of respiratory problems, and started to considering windbreaks. Other areas, we looked where there was a, a dearth of transportation options and looked at ways that people could travel by foot or bike. And then the households where there was impervious surface all around and how we could mitigate the temperatures inside that manifested from extreme heat events like urban heat. Thanks, Lisa. Dave, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, good morning, Sarah and Vlad and Lisa. And Lisa, it's particularly a pleasure to be 
uh, able to chat with you this morning, given what Lad was telling us about the lack of problem owners in local government. I think when when we look at you and what you're doing in Las Cruces, we see a counterexample there that we do have someone in local government who's really taken on the heat challenge and is trying to to push uh, some some solutions forward. So appreciate everything you're doing. You know, Sarah, we've seen across the country uh, literally dozens of heat island mapping campaigns uh, happen over the past several years in various forms, whether they're heat island mapping campaigns using satellite imagery like we heard from Lisa or heat island campaigns that are using ground-based sensors or vehicle-based uh, sensors that have been a really interesting way to engage community members in collecting weather and climate data. And I'm re really excited to see how those will continue to expand and help empower folks like Lisa to, to make uh, policy and program arguments with city council and other regulating bodies. And also really excited to think about the next generation of heat island mapping campaigns. Uh, Lisa referred to surface temperature measurements, vehicles are collecting air temperature measurements. And what we also know as urban climatologists is that what's called the radiant temperature in the environment, which really captures that difference between sun and shade is also super important to measure. So I think over the next five to 10 years, it's gonna be really exciting to see how we use different types of technologies to very precisely understand where people, uh, where people can be most comfortable in cities. So building on that a little bit, Dave, you know, now we've mapped the urban heat island, we know, you know, extreme heat in these cities, but what are some of the ways that communities can mitigate the impacts of extreme heat on public health? Um, you know, Lad gave a few examples, but could you give some more? Yeah, I think I think Lad gave a very nice overview. I personally think about two big buckets of strategies. One, the heat mitigation strategies, I would call them everything we're doing to cool the city or make it more comfortable. And then we also have a second bucket that I call heat adaptation strategies. And these are the programs that help people cope with heat when it occurs. Uh, just to give a couple of examples to add to what Lad said, we've seen the city of Phoenix here in Arizona implementing a pilot uh, cool roads program over the past uh, year or two. This would be one of those mitigation strategies that can make the city cooler. And the idea is by using a different coating on top of the road material, we're able to reflect more sunlight back into the environment instead of having the ground absorb it and then slowly re-release it into the city. One of the processes that creates that urban heat island effect that Lad was talking about. We've also seen the city of Phoenix recently approve funding for a cool corridors program where they'll be adding about 200 trees to each of nine miles of city streets uh, each year in, in perpetuity moving forward. And trees operate as a good cooling strategy for a number of different mechanisms. But we can't forget about those heat adaptation strategies either, those programs that can help people cope with heat. And sometimes these are very heat focused programs and sometimes they're not. For example, here in the, the Phoenix area, we've seen a renewed conversation around cooling centers, how to optimize their locations, how to ensure that every cooling center has the resources it needs to be effective. A cooling center for those who may not be aware is intended to be a public air conditioned space where someone can go during the day if they don't otherwise have access to a comfortable indoor environment. But I think we also need to be thinking about some of our upstream strategies as well that maybe aren't particularly heat focused. For example, what is the cost of electricity in our cities? That's a huge determinant of underlying risk and vulnerability to heat. And I think, I think there are some of these bigger, broader policy questions that we're all battling with that turn out to be really important for the, the public health heat connection. Lisa, what about for Las Cruces? Could you give us some examples of what you all are doing over there? 
We have been dabbling in a lot of different projects, many of which Dave just mentioned. We have a coating that we're putting on to reflect the sun's heat on our bike lanes. We have been looking more into pervious pavement and other coatings to deal with our plaza. And one of the things that's really run through for me, and this is more of an adaptation strategy that I hope will turn into a mitigation strategy, is that the pandemic really illustrated the challenges with public cooling stations or congregating in any public space. And I did a small project where I installed a mini split in the main living room of a low-income house. And then we added solar panels to offset the additional cost. So we, in, in essence, created a cooling station in someone's home. And it got me thinking about the energy efficiency programs and how they don't really address thermal comfort or resiliency. And so I confirmed that with a gap analysis of the weatherization service providers in our area and did see that there are lots of gaps and lots of ways that we are not addressing the vulnerable populations that we need to be considerate of. And so my goal in, in a really upstream sense is to reframe the way that these programs, whether they're weatherization or energy efficiency, that they start addressing those concerns. They're in there and they could really refocus their efforts. And if that doesn't work, I'm hoping to develop a parallel operation that does. That's great, Lisa. And, and I appreciate you bringing up the topic of vulnerable populations, um, which we discussed a lot last month in our episode on public health. And um, some of our later questions today will address that as well. Um, so going over to you, Lad, could you give some examples for the city of Tucson? Sure. And I love the examples that both Dave and Lisa gave. I would say similar to Dave, I wanted to just reiterate the importance of kind of those heat mitigation strategies, reducing the contribution of urban heat. And then also what I call heat management, but same, same as Dave's heat adaptation um, category. And just the idea that cities need to plan for and respond to, um, you know, rising heat risk um, as well. And so kind of what we've seen again from uh, different research that I've done looking at um, interviews across the country of people dealing with heat and doing plan analysis is that there's a lot of silos between these two areas of heat mitigation and heat management. And uh, that's why I'm really interested in that idea of heat governance and how cities are kind of creating uh, new rules, processes, and institutions, and how those are changing very quickly to address um, kind of growing heat risk and um, as that awareness grows, we're seeing more, you know, more uh, attention to it too. So I would say as far as Tucson's examples, our regional government, the Pima Association of Governments, has hosted one of the longest examples that I can find in the country of an uh, urban heat island map. And so that was posted um, in the early 2010s um, based off of uh, U of A student um, Eve Halper's uh, dissertation work from 2008. And so that's been uh, publicly accessible for quite a while. And so that's really become a resource that a lot of nonprofits and local governments have used. And because it's regional, it doesn't just cover the city of Tucson, it covers unincorporated areas too. And so there's been a lot of kind of creative uses from that looking at heat. I would say though that Tucson, um, like many cities across the United States, has really been focused on that urban greening category of heat mitigation. And so, you know, we've done some really positive things. The Mayor and Council of Tucson passed a green stormwater infrastructure fee in 2020 um, to help build and maintain more green infrastructure across the city. And in 2018, 
our voters passed a $225 million Parks and Connections Fund um, that's specifically targeting um, those areas that need more of that vegetation to help um, cool the city and looking at kind of the vulnerability aspects of that too. We're also doing a cool paving uh, pilot project, uh, just like Phoenix, like Dave mentioned. And so we have a couple of those coming up in the fall, which will be interesting to see um, the results and how it's different and similar to what Phoenix has done and uh, what's happened in Los um, Angeles. But what I would really like to see uh, the Tucson kind of region focus on more in the future is those heat management strategies and kind of looking at, um, again, kind of addressing heat as both chronic um, heat stress risk and then also those extreme heat events. and. Uh, kind of building off of what Dave said, a lot of the current heat management strategies are really focused on open cooling centers, like during a heat wave. But we have a lot of folks that have um, unsafe housing, unsafe work conditions, unsafe um, schooling conditions for like uh, you know nine months out of the year sometimes um, in the Southwest. And so I would I would really like to see kind of heat management not just be focused on those extreme heat waves that we have but also just the chronically hot summers that we have, um, especially as those increase in the future. And this uh, governance gap that Lad is speaking to and this idea of silos, I I don't think this is just a a talking point. I think we see this, and I'd love to hear Lisa's comments on this as well, but at least as an academic looking at what's happening in city government, I I think we've seen a lot of examples of this, whether it's we've convened meetings to talk heat with regional stakeholders and emergency managers have stood up and openly asked and shared their uncertainty about whether it was even appropriate for them to be at this meeting in the first place. Or with another city government, the deputy city manager handpicked some people to work on heat planning, and very few of them had even met each other before. Or in in one other case, we asked as part of a heat project with local government, should we be thinking about what's in the hazard mitigation plan, the federally required hazard mitigation plan related to heat? Uh, No, that's somebody else's job. I think we're continuing to see some of these barriers literally tangibly impede progress. And of particular concern is that when it comes to the hazard mitigation plan, this is an opportunity to access federal resources, or it can be an opportunity to access federal resources. We're just not very well organized to try to access those resources right now. Lisa, is this something you see day in and day out as well as a practitioner? I think you've been spying on me, Dave. There. That that certainly that story certainly resonates with me here. That the the hazard mitigation plans here are very upstream strategies, and heat is just taken as a given. They don't really understand how it is a chronic and extreme event, acute event. And the also, I think that to uh, Lad's point, we're at a stage right now where we really need to have explicit design standards and metrics to be able to institute these changes, to have these codified. So it is the practice that everyone uses, and particularly in vulnerable areas. And I have been searching for that, and and I'm really happy to know that I can borrow what Tucson just did, but I I feel like uh, we aren't on the same page here, and and it has a lot to do with the fact that extreme heat 
urban heat is so chronic. It's so pervasive. It's so normal, air quotes, and that we need to find a way to make it be an issue that everyone realizes is escalating. Just expanding on this, Dave, you're mentioning how um, in lots of communities, people aren't necessarily in different departments, aren't necessarily working together on this issue. But I have been to, and I know that these meetings are happening in Arizona around extreme heat, connecting researchers, the National Weather Service, emergency managers, and the public health department. So could you describe these efforts a little bit? You know, are they working? Are they not working? And if you have advice for other communities that are thinking about doing something similar. Yeah, that, thanks, Sarah. We have been really fortunate to get the ball rolling on a regional conversation around heat that we've called the Arizona Heat Resilience Working Group, uh, which was really catalyzed because of COVID. I, I remember being on the phone with a local government official early last spring in the early in early stages of figuring out how we were going to both be prepared for summer heat and ma manage the complications that uh, Lisa introduced related to COVID. And that, that particular question was about public ramadas. These provide shade and outdoor spaces. And the question was, should we close the ramadas or leave them open? They provide shade. So that's good for when it gets hot, but they're also a point of congregation and that's bad because of COVID. So that, that was just a very small but tangible practical trade-off that we had to think through. And it quickly became apparent that there were going to be hundreds, if not thousands, of similar questions to ask about cooling centers and COVID, about buses and light rail and COVID. And who's and we're already struggling to know who's in charge of heat response in the first place. Now, what if that person is reassigned to work on COVID? So it quickly became apparent that there was a need to, we, we needed to share between local government agencies, between the health departments, between the universities, because we were going to be really strapped for capacity to understand how to battle these, the, or how to manage these trade-offs. Uh, so uh, several of our partners in local government and the university here helped stand up what at the time was a weekly conference call. And after a few of those, uh, which seemed to be relatively productive, we asked ourselves, why haven't we been doing this all along? It seems like it would be quite useful to touch base and talk about what we're doing, what we're learning for managing extreme heat. So we've we've continued uh, that, that working group uh, ever since. We've alternated the frequency of meetings between weekly, bi-weekly, uh, monthly to try to fit into to folks' schedules. Uh, from some, we had an external evaluator talk to uh, several of the perhaps 75 to 100 folks who have been attending these calls uh, on and off last winter. And there was a lot of positive feedback to your question of, is it working? I think it's hard to measure tangibly exactly how, but we've certainly, uh, I think we certainly turned the corner there where we see now new cooling centers coming online with different resources than we know would have happened in the absence of this uh, this working group. To your question about advice, I think if another group of municipalities is interested to start something like this, remembering that heat is mostly no one's priority is unfortunately a, a good reality. Uh, we, we are always trying to think about how to align the conversation with other existing priorities and initiatives, trying to articulate what the value add would be to participation. I was very surprised to hear uh, one of the main takeaways from the evaluation we did last winter, which was 
that was like an extra hour long phone call that folks had to attend, right? It didn't sound very appealing, but many of them said, we wish we could do this more often, reflect on the conversation we're having so we can ensure that future conversations are better. So maybe more frequent, uh, less formal evaluation would be helpful. And then the clear, clearest data point from our evaluation is that our, our forecaster from the local weather service who joins us for the start of every call and provides a recap and a, a, a look at the forecast was absolutely the superstar of every call. Folks are coming to these calls to hear the weather forecast and hear some of the extra insights that come directly out of the forecaster's mouth, contextualizing the heat we've had and the, and the heat we uh, we expect moving forward. So any opportunity to partner with the weather forecaster, at least here, seems to have helped. Yeah, I can see how that piece would be key. And, and well, it really everyone involved there, emergency managers, public health experts, weather service, and it is funny when you say, you know, why weren't we doing this before? It's one of those things that happens and all of a sudden you're like, well, this is this is great. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's still moving forward. Switching gears just slightly, Lisa, I wanted to ask you if you could share your favorite green infrastructure project that you have helped implement in Las Cruces. Well, I'm not sure I'd call it my favorite green infrastructure project, but it certainly was a learning lesson. I borrowed, in air quotes, Phoenix's brilliant strategy of creating cool corridors, which are native trees, landscape, native tree landscaped areas that are bumped out into the street with chicanes is another way of phrasing it, and they harvest stormwater. And one of the advantages of being a smaller city is that you're a little bit more nimble and you can get things done. So I knew about Phoenix's idea, but I took it and thought I would run with it. And unfortunately, although it's completed, it was not the success that I'd hoped for. The gas lines that paralleled the corridor were not installed as planned. We thought they were going to be running closer to the curb, and they did not. And the lines intruded into the landscape area and public works was unwilling to explore the root barriers or other options. So the majority of the decanes don't even have trees. So we weren't really able to provide the, the cool corridor that we were hoping for. And one of the things that's the lesson from this, in order to, for us to address heat mitigation, in order for it to be successful, everybody has to be willing to solve this problem because there's a lot of old infrastructure. There's a lot of old urban design that's just not working and will not be helpful for the future. And so finding strategies that become best practices is super important to me because I have to solve all the problems in introducing these new innovations, these new technologies, because there's a traditional way of thinking that goes on in these silos. And we are just, you know, stirring the pot here. And so, um, again, I really lean on the technicians, the policymakers, and all of you to help me with this uh, implementation side. Yeah, Lisa, it's uh, encouraging to hear that. And I think the, the point that you're making here also highlights what a problem the governance gap is and the lack of a problem owner that Lad, Lad so nicely articulated earlier. Uh, yeah, as we all know, 
city infrastructure ages and breaks and eventually needs repaired. Eventually, we're going to dig up the road that I'm looking out at my office window right now and replace the pipes and replace the gas lines and maybe move them a foot to the left and a foot to the right. And if we can move them a foot to the left or to the right, it might make all the difference in the world from an urban forestry perspective. But if your voice or the voice of the heat problem owner is not in the room, which is very likely going to be the case because we don't have problem owners, no one's going to be able to speak up for that no or low cost change that could make a huge difference. Uh, so we, we need we need to keep building our, our army of leases out there who are able to get their, their voice in that conversation for what we think can be relatively low or even no cost strategies that can be hugely impactful. Yeah, speaking of this army of leases, I recently saw an interview in with the first chief, the title is chief heat officer in Greece. So someone to handle, um, you know, all of the city very specifically related to just heat. That's her whole job. And so seems like maybe some cities are making this topic a priority. And so that does, you know, give me some hope that eventually things will start changing here. This leads to my next question, because we like to end our episodes on a hopeful note. And so, you know, I want to ask each of you what gives you hope for the future when you're thinking about this topic. And obviously, there are a lot of barriers to implementing change. So, I mean, my hope comes from all of you and the work that you're doing and, you know, especially Lisa at the city level trying to really make changes happen. So, uh, Lisa, I'll start with you then, since I just mentioned your name. What, what gives you hope for the future? Even though I slipped back to the depressing narrative in my last response, I need to realize the strategies that we are suggesting are transformative in terms of equity, quality of life, and a healthier planet. I felt alone when I started working in sustainability eight years ago, but I've met amazing people that are committed to implementing important changes, and I'm happy to be a part of it. So knowing that you're out there and knowing that we're all working on it is a synergy that I know we'll have great rewards for all of us. So thanks for having me. Vlad, what gives you hope? Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned the world's um, first chief heat officers. And so, so Athens, Greece has one and one's been appointed for Miami-Dade County. And it'll be interesting to see what they can do. Um, I would say, though, I would look more to the city of Phoenix's um, Office of Heat uh, Response and Mitigation because that's based on internal city funding. They've actually included it as part of their budget. Um, whereas in comparison, the chief heat officers are foundation-funded temporary positions. And what we saw previously with the Rockefeller's uh, 100 Resilient Cities program is that after that program and the funding ended, uh, the majority of those positions were eliminated or repurposed. And so I think Phoenix is really kind of the example that we should look to since they really put their money where their mouth is, is um, as you would say. And just, just for some context, um, so we have two chief heat officers in the world now, one um, that's being hired for um, the city of Phoenix. There's 20,000 um, municipalities incorporated in cities and towns in the United States alone. So three positions out of, you know, three positions in the world out of 20,000, um, you know, locations in the United States. And so, you know, not all of those cities and towns need a chief heat officer. But if you compare this to flood risk, most of those locations have floodplain management departments or flood official. And so the infrastructure to deal with heat, the heat governances um, Dave and I have been talking about and Lisa's been um, adding to, 
is just uh, sorely behind. So I would say that's not that's not my area of hope. I know that's kind of a negative take on it. My area of hope is um, we did a literature review of heat planning papers and found that 60% of the research has been done in the last five years. And kind of if you look at the graph every year, there's just more papers coming out, more research that's being done. I know um, Dave and I are contacted uh, constantly by more uh, talented students interested in this area kind of going forward in the future. So I think there's going to be a lot more um, research in this area that will help inform cities, which is a good thing. And then I think, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest heat wave that occurred in July 2021 was a huge wake up call for a lot of communities that didn't realize that heat was actually a current problem and not something that was going to be a future problem. And so, um, you know, my area of hope is that cities actually have a lot of uh, regulatory power, like I mentioned earlier. We have land use regulations and zoning codes that we use to regulate flood risk and wildfire risk and yeah, all types of other risks. And so we have the tools in place. Um, we just need to utilize the tools that we have, um, you know, from an urban planning perspective that are already there. So I think there's a lot of things that cities can start to do um, right now to address heat. Just one quick thing I want to add on to uh, Lad's hopeful tracking of this issue is that things like ADA compliance and other things and flood, like you said, are becoming the norm or have been, are the norm. And that that'll be a metric for us. We, we have two heat officers, but how will things change? Looking at the research, looking at the positions, looking at the design standards, I'm hopeful that this will all accelerate. So I just wanted to build on your enthusiasm. Thanks, Lisa. And I'm glad Lad mentioned that uh, heat wave in the Northwest as well, because I'm guessing, you know, in the future, those cities are going to be looking to the Southwest, the art, you know, Arizona, New Mexico cities that have been doing this work for a while already um, for ideas. So Dave, uh, lastly, what gives you hope? Yeah, I'd like to reiterate some of the messages we've heard from uh, Lad and Lisa, in particular, Lad, some language you used at the top of the podcast, and again, most recently, that were really not using the tools in our toolbox. And we can make the case, I think, that we're even just like learning what tools are there and, and how to use them. And to, to contextualize that state of infancy from a public health perspective, humans have shown, at least in developed countries, uh, have shown amazing ability to adapt to climate-related hazards over the past several decades. In the United States, Fewer people died from heat in the 2010s than did in the 2000s, than did in the 90s, than did in the 80s. We are on and have been on a very positive trajectory. And the question is, can we maintain that momentum as we encounter intersecting challenges of warming, aging infrastructure, aging people, and other factors that are going to make it harder to keep up with, with these climate-related challenges, including extreme heat? I think what gives me hope is that we're just beginning to learn how to use the tools in our toolbox. We still have a lot of opportunity, a lot of weapons at our disposal to try to keep up that, that momentum as we move forward. It's not as though all of our solutions are exhausted and it's a hopeless situation. In fact, it feels like exactly the opposite, that we have a big challenge, but we've hardly deployed any of our tools yet to try to tackle that challenge. So I'm, I'm very encouraged and optimistic about, about where we can go. Well, thank you all very much for those um, hopeful comments. And I just wanted to give you one last opportunity if there's any last thoughts that you'd like to share before we say goodbye. 
Yeah, I'll start off, Sarah. I would just say that um, heat governance, like we've been talking about, heat planning is very much a niche of climate planning still. Um, and climate planning is a niche of planning and the niche of local governance all, all together. And so justifiably, um, many of us that work in climate planning, then specifically more of the heat world, are very focused on equity and vulnerable populations and marginalized communities. I think one thing that we have to figure out how to change the framing of is a lot of times when we speak about heat, we frame it in such a way that it only sounds like it's um, an issue for vulnerable or marginalized populations. And I think that that will be a challenge going forward as we try to broaden awareness and um, get more people involved in heat planning and the idea that cities should be planning for heat. Um, we have to continue the focus on equity and that vulnerability, but also bridge it to um, you know, the people that have air conditioning and don't feel the heat waves in the same way. And so I think the messaging around heat is something we really need to work on. And, uh, you know, examples that I give often are um, during a heat wave, can, you know, the person that can afford a house with air conditioning and has a good job, do they have to, you know, um, have their kids not go to the playground at the normal time? Or do they have to, like, not walk their dog because it's too hot and shift that activity? You know, are they, um, are they prevented from doing outdoor activities themselves? And so I think we have, to, we have to figure out that tricky balance of continuing to focus and making sure that we're helping the most vulnerable communities but also broadening the language so we're not specifically just focused on vulnerability um, because heat really does affect the entire community. And if we want to address it like an urban planning issue, we're going to have to get everybody involved and interested in the topic. Lisa, Dave, anything you'd like to say before we adjourn? Well, I'd like to thank you again for getting the opportunity to visit with everybody. And I really think that there is synergy when we all get together. And I hope that we get more opportunities to do it. I think that there, it takes a village. There's a lot of work to do, but I know that there's some good heads at the table. So thank you again. And my uh, last word will just be encouraging all the uh, listeners to stay cool and stay safe and look for ways to get involved in this conversation as hopefully uh, we all have heard today. There's a, a lot of space and a lot of work to do. Yeah, thanks, Dave. And to that point, we will add some links into the the description of this podcast. So anything you would like to share with everyone, um, we can put that there. Well, thank you all very much for uh, talking with us today. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Come Rain or Shine, podcast of the USDA Southwest Climate Hub and the USGS Southwest CASC. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to rate or review it and subscribe for more great episodes. A special thanks to our production crew, Sky, Amy, and Rihanna Burnett. If you want more information, have any questions for the speakers, or would like to offer feedback, please reach out to us via our websites.